Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and this is our budget episode. It is focused on the federal budget, tabled on April 7th, and my two guests in different conversations are Sahir Khan and Brett House. Sahir is the Executive Vice President at the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy, working together with Kevin Page, a previous guest of the podcast and someone whose expertise I've certainly relied on in the course of my work. Sahir has been a public finance executive, teacher, advisor, speaker, and his expertise lies in budgetary and financial analysis, reporting, and organizational performance. Now, Brett House, my second guest, has actually been a guest of mine before. He's a former deputy chief economist, macroeconomist at a big bank, and he's currently a senior fellow at Massey College. Together, the conversations are wide-ranging from fiscal sustainability to prudence in an inflationary environment to the idea behind modern supply-side economics with some money ball for government and cryptocurrency considerations thrown in for good measure. First up, here's to here. So here, thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Great to be here. You made a number of comments in advance of the budget, but one really stuck out to me. You said the federal government has to remain fiscally sustainable, and I think they're going to have to pull off some kind of alchemy to get all of this to work. And you'd identify the principal challenge of triaging multiple large spending pressures, making adequate provision for risk, and remaining sustainable at the same time. Did Minister Freeland pull off that alchemy? I think she did. And um, I think the the alchemy is as much on the political side of what she decided to include with the Minister of Finance and the Prime Minister. And and there'll be a story about what she excluded. And I think that's where the alchemy lives. Um, I think we were left with a budget that is fiscally prudent. I think it doesn't mean there aren't risks on the horizon that we have to be mindful of, but uh, there were a bunch of, I think, down payments on major policy areas. And we can kind of walk through what those are. And I think how I think the alchemy kind of took place, where just enough was kind of done in each of these kind of important political areas, uh, political commitments, uh, while essentially having a bit of a wait and see to have more of a down payment on some of these issues, uh, rather than maybe solving them outright, looking for partners at other levels of government, the private sector. You saw a bit of that kind of balancing, the fact maybe an acknowledgement the federal government on its own, can't do everything. And it really needs to actually collaborate with other partners to get things done. Your colleague, Kevin Page, wrote with two students, Sahib Daliwal and Megan Frendo, that the budget is surprisingly measured, modest, and responsible. And before we get to that conversation about specific measures and, and how we balance those competing priorities and how we manage to balance those competing priorities in this budget, Mr. Freeman was very clear that the fiscal anchor, we pushing aside some of the guardrails discussed about previously, but the fiscal anchor going back to basics in some ways is debt to GDP, declining debt to GDP, and that it's a line that we are not going to cross. And obviously the pandemic required significant spending to bridge Canadians and businesses through the pandemic, but we are now back to a place where we need to see that debt to GDP ratio decline. Explain why that ought to be the fiscal anchor and and why it's such an important line not to cross. Yeah, I think there was a, a sense, you know, at least from from Kevin and myself, Mustafa, that um, we wanted the risk out there, the economic risk, the geopolitical uncertainty recognized in some way. Um, and that's hard. I don't think economists are very good at this. I don't think anyone's got a really great crystal ball to say, okay, we know what the next six months, the next year um, is going to look like. But the idea is that you try to set aside money 
for that. I think the presumption was it was going to be a big spending budget. So we were looking for maybe lots of spending and all the kind of policy pressures that were kind of being, whether they were leaked or they were talked about, put out in the ether before the budget, if they came to pass, then we were really looking to see some kind of fiscal provision set aside for some of the economic risk. The reality was it just wasn't as big a spending budget as we thought. So there was a lot of prudence kind of baked into this. But at the end of the day, what we're kind of looking for is a spending track that's going to grow at a slower rate than the rate of revenue for the federal government. That's kind of what sustainability looks at. And it looks at it over a 30, 40, 50 year period. And every once a year, you'll see the parliamentary budget office kind of update those numbers. And it's a scenario. It's not a prediction, Uh, but it tells you kind of what kind of space the federal government has uh, in order to make sure that debt to GDP continues to decline. And we're not really passing on you know, structural deficits and, and debt to the next generation without giving them assets and capabilities in an economy that are going to, you know, produce, you know, livable communities and jobs and, and, and support our social infrastructure. So that's kind of what we're trying to do when we look at fiscal sustainability. The other big piece of this data is that um, is an aging population. So when the federal government when we say they're sustainable, part of it is because they're largely insulated from the aging population and and those demographic pressures that provinces are not. So provinces actually struggle with healthcare costs, other social services arising from a, a population that's aging and on a, kind of on two levels. One is you're paying out a lot to kind of support uh, that cohort of the population, but at the same time, that group, is, as they age, are earning less. Um, so they're paying less taxes. And so you kind of get this double effect when your population ages. Why, and it's it's why you see immigration kind of featured so highly in the, in this budget. Uh, without it, we'd be in quite a bit of trouble. But those are kind of the the building blocks of a fiscal sustainability story, right? Is insulating yourself from kind of the demographics, uh, making sure your spending path is growing less than your 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 economy, at least the forecasted, and and making sure that the type of spending you do is to some extent time limited. Um, It's not overly kind of structural and baked in. uh, And that means that when the economy declines, you're not stuck with spending all this money that you you can't kind of lever up and down. So uh, a long way to say that, you know, on on those marks, you know, barring maybe a little bit of structural deficit, I think this government, Minister Freeland succeeded uh, to keep this on track and effectively give us a reset to pre-pandemic times. And what about the nature of the spending we have seen previously an emphasis on demand style stimulus and and to encourage consumption and especially you know highlighting the pandemic and bridging people through the pandemic but even before that in in, in some measures as well the like can child benefit and and increases along those lines when we look now to the spending in this budget we see 60 billion in new spending or so but half of that is accounted for by way of new taxes or savings or reprofiling funding. So it's 31 billion I can see in, in new spending that is out of the 85 billion sort of windfall since an increased revenue since the fall fiscal update. But when we look at the kind of spending, not all spending is equal. And I even saw in Kevin Page's note when we talk about hitting the two percent the the NATO target, if if we're going to do that, and and there's obviously a strong political will to get closer to that in this budget, but to continue along that track, we should be increasing taxation along those lines for that kind of spending in order for federal finances to, to be sustainable. But when you look at the aging demographics, when you look at intergenerational fairness concerns, and then you look at the kind of spending we see on climate action, on housing, on reconciliation, 
do you see the right kind of spending in this budget? Well, you're, yeah, I think, I think you've characterized it well. Um, if we'd seen major, major healthcare transfers to the provinces without any kind of commensurate increase in taxes, that would have been a problem. That would have been the type of permanent long-term spending that might have changed the trajectory of that spending track for the federal government. What we saw were measures that I think were, in some cases, limited in scope, maybe time limited. Um, And in some cases, I would argue almost down payments on maybe future commitments, which allows for that wait and see dimension to what happens to the economy. Does the war in Ukraine persist for, you know, beyond you know the next year next couple of years does the you know the supply chain challenges out of covid persist uh you know are are we heading for stagflation if we could kind of get out ahead you know uh, beyond those those risks in the next couple of years then i think uh you know heading in the next election this current government can then maybe have another look at the nature of spending but you're right i don't think this type of spending in this budget was really the type that would get a government in trouble on healthcare alone you saw Dental care, but you saw dental care, which is, you know, first of all, it's not a massive program, say, compared to pharmacare. Um, you saw other mental health initiatives kind of doubling down on those. Those are those are relatively targeted and modest in scope. Um, dental care is new, and I don't want to undersell what it is, but it's not the permanent large-scale expenditure associated with pharmacare, which has been punted out into the future. And I imagine if the geopolitical landscape kind of settles down a bit and we can see out into the future, then maybe at that time, you know, considering um, integration of pharmacare into the fiscal track might make sense. But I think for the times, the nature of spending really kind of matched uh, the level of uncertainty that we have in kind of the macro environment. I wish we talked about different kinds of spending more in politics because not all spending is equal, but we sometimes treat it as equal and a short-term housing accelerator to really drive change in zoning and to expand supply, but it's not going to be an ongoing expenditure every single year, 20 years from now, is very different from the healthcare transfers or an OAS increase or a a tax cut that is permanent in increasing basic personal amount, both of which, the latter, both of which we did in, I think, a, a less sustainable way. But this budget didn't have those same kinds of spending that from an intergenerational perspective, at least I, I, some of those latter areas kind of raised my hackles, I would say when I saw them in the previous budgets, but, but this one, it it did look the, the bulk of the spending was medium term to long-term focused on growing productivity and and focused on long-term challenges that are not about consumption, but more focused on investment. And uh, I think that's well said. And, if you, let's let's look at housing for example. Um, the uh, the budget quoted a study that said that we needed three and a half million units over the next uh, ten years. We're building two hundred thousand a year. So assuming we follow that track, you, you can get a sense of the gap: a million and a half units. This budget does not build a million and a half homes, right? That's why I said I think you look at these policy areas, um, whether it's you know healthcare, dental care, um, defense, housing. These appear to be down payments, right? They're trying to trigger participation from the private sector, other orders of government. In the lockup, it was telling that we had senior officials kind of talk about the limits of federal instruments in some of these areas. Uh, we know that in productivity, we've tried a lot of things and we are where we are. And it's not terribly successful relative to peers in the OECD. 
So you don't want to double down, triple down on stuff you, you're, you're really not convinced work really well. Uh, and I think that's what this characterizes budget is you, you see even housing kind of effectively time limited. And, and so I think fairly, you see people kind of advocates for housing say this doesn't you know, move the needle on, on changing the nature of the housing stock. But you know, I would argue the federal government doesn't build houses. But we know where the challenges are. It is a supply problem. So in every area, I think the diagnosis was right. There's a supply problem, but this is something that municipalities, provinces, builders really have to kind of wrap their minds around. And the federal government can be a catalyst. And maybe that's the right role in these areas that aren't federal jurisdictions is be a catalyst, be something that kind of be an order of government that kind of triggers good behavior and and helps to solve the problem as the partner, but not as a lead uh, trying to kind of solve the million and a half unit shortage on their own. And if you are going to lean in in a more significant way, which I, I hope we do actually on housing, that we ensure that there is a fiscally sustainable track to doing so. And in light of the uncertainties, and I think it's the uncertainties that was my greatest takeaway from your commentary and from Kevin's commentary. And in that paper, I'll quote just one part of it, but the government's policy response to the uncert- this uncertainty and the uncertainty being characterized as the war of aggression against Ukraine and the illegal invasion of Ukraine, but also as against inflationary considerations, as as against a really uncertain recovery out of this pandemic. The government's policy response to this uncertainty was to table a modest and measured budget that would not push up the inflation rate in the short term and leave some fiscal space to absorb deteriorating economic conditions. And I guess when as a parliamentarian, I look to this question of how do I best scrutinize government action? How do I best hold the government to account in relation to finances? Not the easiest thing to do sometimes in, in yeah. this business and with the modest staff that we've got as far as it goes. One thing that stood out, for example, was the forecasts were from February pre-Ukraine-Russia crisis and possibly a rosier outlook than we are currently going to see in actuality over the next five years and and that same time horizon. And so when you think of the uncertainties that we face, are there concerns that should be raised out of this budget that I should be bringing back or that I should be especially scrutinizing? Yeah, I I think uh, when when we say this was, you know, modest and prudent, um, you know, with with what we know right now, it it certainly looks that way. Uh, But things change. And we're, you know, in, in our business, we're really not good at kind of predicting inflection points for change, right? Um, this summer, the parliamentary budget office will put out uh, an updated fiscal sustainability analysis. That's worth a lot of discussion because that's going to get at this issue that you brought up around the nature of spending. Um, I, I did a podcast right before the budget and I've kind of I've said that I really bristle at the word investment. <laughs> I think investment uh, is and almost as much as infrastructure. Everything's infra- as soon as infrastructure was good, everything became infrastructure. Yeah, everything's and, an infrastructure and, investment. <laughs> absolutely. So now we have social infrastructure. Have, and, and the same thing on 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 spending. You know, it's spending, and it, it's okay. That's what governments do. They try to solve problems for Canadians. Uh, but I don't think we have to call everything an investment either. And an investment implies a return. You know, sometimes we just keep people out of trouble. Uh, we save lives in the pandemic. We keep the government out of a, the, the country out of a depression. Uh, those aren't investments. That's just spending to 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 keep uh, Canadians uh, solvent and and healthy. But I, I think I think the language matters, and I think this this deconstruction you talk about the nature of spending really matters. And it'll, and every time kind of the PBO puts up these these reports, it's really important opportunity for this dialogue in Parliament. So what does this mean? And and a couple of areas where you know maybe there there 
there's a linkage. The, the government also announced that we'll see um, policy reviews uh, beginning. Uh, and that, that's new. And that's that's quite welcome. We haven't had one in over a decade since the drop initiative of the conservative government. Uh, but boy, what an opportunity for parliament as well. And an opportunity for scrutiny because, uh, and that's a really good example uh, and, and a good answer, because I was surprised at the amount of money we're booking in relation to that review. That And I could have it slightly wrong, but I understood it to be booking about $9 billion between two kinds of review over the first five years, but then also booking $3 billion ongoing. I don't know how we're going to do this, given we haven't been able to do this since 2015, but $3 billion ongoing in the course of efficiency reviews as well. And so walk me through what that looks like. There, Some would get their backs up unquestionably, and I saw already media reported the public service has raised some concerns because this could translate. And if a conservative were talking about efficiencies, people would think cuts. And so what do we, what should we be thinking about? What should I be thinking about when I hear the language of review and I see such a significant amount booked? I think the one word we should really think about is performance. As as an analyst, I, I don't think we talk about the quality of spending as much as we talk about the quantity of spending. What are we getting for the dollars? We just had a budget which talked about spending, you know, $60 billion for the next five years. You're right, half of it's coming from, from revenues and and the the review measures and things like that. But but the reality is there's money rolling over through estimates every year. That's going with very little scrutiny in parliament. 350 million, I think we'll be up to 400 billion dollars, 100 billion in tax expenditures. And I, I think once we 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 did a tabulation of the hours, uh, you know. In, in, expended in parliamentary committee for the review of these, uh, and it was it was probably it was embarrassingly low. Um, when we do these reviews, it's an opportunity to move beyond the increment of spending. So we have these budgets; they're big political events, but really we talk about a couple of things: what we think the forecast is going to look like, the economy, how much money will that generate for the federal government, and how's it going to be spent, and what are we left with, and are we sustainable? Those are kind of the four corners of of, of a budget. We rarely talk about that money rolling over year after year after year. We do we do training on for public servants in public finance, and we actually have a course in reviews. And sometimes out of our window at the University of Ottawa, we point at the Rideau Canal um, across the street, and we say, you, you know, that's that's been appropriated, you know, since Confederation. We're still paying for it every year; it rolls over. You're not going to see it in the budget document. Uh, I'm not going to argue whether you know. It's performing and it's protecting us from the Americans and American invasion and keeping supply routes open because it's not its purpose today. But if you if you think about that spending base, it's not really examined in a parliamentary context very often. A review that the federal government does actually creates an opportunity. Having it led by the Treasury Board also is really important because the Treasury Board minister is the is is kind of the lead interlocutor with Parliament on fiscal matters, right? You know, PCO and finance tend to operate much more in the shadows. But Treasury Board, they're the ones that are tabling the documents and how government intends to spend money, uh, how it's spending money, and what it, what taxpayers are getting for that money. So having Parliament kind of pay attention to the reviews, pay attention to the estimates, that's a really important exercise in scrutiny. Because you know, in the middle of this five-year forecast, we're up to a three trillion dollar economy, with the government turning over, you know, including tax expenditures, you know, between four and five hundred billion dollars a year. And so, yeah, we can keep focusing on this incremental budget. It's very important. But boy, looking at that base, what an opportunity. What an opportunity for this government to consider whether the spending in that base is aligned to its priorities. Is it efficient? And is it effective? 
And that's what a review really should be about. How did he deal with workforce adjustment in that in that context? You know, a lot of a lot of these have actually been accomplished with with attrition, um, if it comes to that. But I don't think these reviews actually have to start out with anything about to do with layoffs. I think the language has to be really about performance. Are we getting value for money? The the value for money speaks to me as a as a sabermetrics baseball nerd and who would read far too much about baseball statistics as, as, as a, a a much younger version of myself. So my two questions on a going forward basis. One, when we look at the prudence in this budget as against, and, and I should say I had David Hurley on the podcast and he was expressing reservations about the liberal NDP deal. And I said, the proof will be in the budget. I think the proof was in the budget. The concerns that people were raising did not come to fruition, but this is the first budget of many budgets, and we're going to see this government hopefully continue in keeping with that deal until 2025. And there are promises that have not yet been met and not yet been realized from our platform. And and no doubt there will be other issues that arise that the government has to respond to that you and I sitting here don't yet know about. And one issue that really, I would say, really bothered me that we didn't realize in this budget was we promised $500 million to address the opioid crisis, which is taking thousands and thousands of lives and just at a round table with the prime minister and frontline healthcare professionals who are living this and seeing people die every day. And we delivered $100 million over three years instead of the $500 million that we'd promised. That that was, if I were to have one major complaint, that, was, that would be a huge complaint of mine in relation to this this. Uh, this budget, but others would no doubt point to other issues and say, well, you've got to spend here and where's the pharmacare spending and and we aren't doing enough on climate and we're not doing enough on housing. And, and you've talked about down payments, but there will be more spending to come. And when we think about that future spending and deficit spending and prudence, and you already identified your concern about the language of, of investment, but should we not be thinking about it along two tracks to say, certain spending must be paid for and we need to have a serious conversation about taxation in this country to make sure we pay for the things we say we want. And then there's other spending where the benefits do accrue, accrue to future generations. They, they are truly infrastructure investments and or they're short-term time-limited. They have a return and climate action, I think, is a significant area where, where those truths hold. Should we thinking about deficit spending differently then? And it's not all debt to GDP. It's different kinds of spending that matter there. I think fiscal anchors matter. I, I think a system that has constraints uh, operates better. Um, we, we know when, when, when I'm in government and you see money sloshing around, um, it, it stopped the internal dialogue within the bureaucracy, stops being about control gates and due diligence and discipline. And it's about incentives for who helps the minister kind of get something over the finish line. So having constraints and disciplining a system actually really matter because ultimately having underperforming programs or projects run amok and talk about Phoenix payroll, those things, they actually um, hurt public confidence. Uh, and I actually care about this a lot because you can't actually get to the tax question unless you deal with the confidence question. If Canadians are really confident in their governments and how they spend their hard-earned money, it's easier to tax. Right. Right now, you know, premiers will keep asking for healthcare transfers or transfer of tax points. It's because they don't want to raise taxes. It's because they're scared to raise taxes. And a former boss of mine, former clerk of the Privy Council Office, had um, Alex Himmelfarb had a book called Taxes Not a Four Letter Word. 
It's true. It really isn't. And I think any discussion of fiscal sustainability should include taxation. We're not saying be fiscally sustainable and don't increase taxes. If if you're not going to increase taxes, make sure your spending track is sustainable. But if you want to do more things, if you want to do more on on uh, on permanent structural spending like healthcare, then increase taxes. And you've read my mind because my second question is. If we were looking at the most thoughtful way of approaching that conversation, and you don't have to run through your litany of possible taxes, but if you were in my shoes and to say, we're going to need revenue tools to do the things we want to do, if we're going to meet the promises we made to Canadians, what's the best revenue tool I should be looking to? Is it a wealth tax? Is it is it more consumption-focused taxation and increasing HST? What, what should I be looking at as a parliamentarian? You know, technically, it'd be, it'd be helpful to put the two points back on the HST. <laughs> that that will deal with pharmacare. It'll deal with uh, you know uh, other you know serious long term issues because it tends to be uh, stable. It it's a very it's applied to a very broad base, and that actually when when it was reduced by two points, that was actually the first little twitch we had of fiscal sustainability challenges, right? Um, because the spending track didn't change right away, and we took two points off a very high producing tax measure. But again, from where I sit in the cheap seats, um, way in the outfield, maybe upper deck, that's easy to do. Uh, if you're a politician, your finance minister, prime minister, uh, it's way more difficult. And, and I think this is where I go, I go back to my earlier point about confidence. Um, a government that does a review, a government that focuses on performance may well find resources within the existing spending base to spend on these priorities. At the very least, if the government's humming along and building confidence with citizens, the dialogue to increase taxes is is a lot easier than if we simply say, okay, you know what? We've had a surge in spending with COVID. You know, we're not going to really think about a reset here. Oh, by the way, you'd like to increase taxes and enlarge the state. Uh, I I think that was some of the thinking before the budget was that we were basically going to enlarge the state again, uh, like 2021. It's quite possible looking back that. 2021 was a once in a generation budget, and this one might have looked a lot more like uh, you know the, the secular trend one might expect from from liberal budgets. It wasn't a small spending budget, it was, and we say modest and prudent, but probably relative to expectations more than anything. <laughs> but there's still 60 billion in new spending over the five year track, 30 billion of which is paid for, but it's still significant yeah. nonetheless. And and fiscally sustainable, but not insignificant in what it's attempting to do. All the same, I, I see so here. I, I appreciate uh, I appreciate your time. I would also say I very much welcome this. Bring the ethos of Bill James into the Canadian government as it relates to Moneyball. So <laughs> I, I will t- I will take that back for sure. And uh, and and honestly, don't, don't I, I hope I can be in touch and, and bother you in the future. But uh, I would say don't hesitate to be in touch on your end as well. Oh, this is great. I, I mean, we're just happy. Like for this is Christmas, right? Like people call us once a year, and then we wait by <laughs> we wait we wait by the phone until there's a fiscal update. Or so we're happy to talk about this thing and uh, this stuff. And I think. Um, Keeping parliamentarians engaged is really important. It can't just be a once a year budget event. Those estimates bills will go through. You'll have mains, subs A, B, sometimes C. Uh, the dialogue on those on those report on those um, bills, but also on the PBO reports that come out around sustainability. That's the oxygen of this discussion, right? That's going to fuel it. And um, you know, uh, there was a line in the in the budget on measures since the fiscal update. Lots of stuff happened off cycle. 
So there are a lot of things that can happen between now and exactly. the fiscal update. And sometimes those fiscal updates are mini budgets. So the opioid issue isn't over for another year. It could be, it could be back on the table in, in another week. But that's about Parliament bringing these issues and making them a priority. And we're lucky to have the PBO. I mean, I got asked a question the other day about the language of fiscal sustainability. Have we moved away from responsibility to sustainability? When did that happen? As I, I don't know, but I can tell you, I look very closely. I always have ever since 2015 at the PBO's fiscal sustainability reports. It's always been sustainability to me. And that's what we should be looking at. And, and, I, and it is good to hear from those who know much more than, than me that we are on a fiscally sustainable track in the course of this budget. And I'll certainly look to what the PBO reports uh, on, on this budget as well. But I appreciate your analysis and your time all the same. My pleasure. Take care. Next, Brett House joins me for a macroeconomist view on both monetary and fiscal policy and how he sees Budget 2022. Brett, thanks so much for joining me. It's great to be on with you, Nate. You are a guest for a second time, and I don't know if you recall, but the first time you joined me, we had an extended conversation on a number of different matters, but we also spoke about MMT. And at the time... I was a bit confused by the approach because the safeguard, as it were, to the MMT approach is you stop doing what you're doing when there's inflation. And my challenge, not knowing as much as most on this, but my my political brain says, well, how are we to respond to inflation so very easily? And now we're living through inflation and it strikes me that there's no quick and easy response to inflation. And the conversation that we had previously is somewhat prevalent. Yeah, I think it remains really relevant because uh, I've been an MMT skeptic uh, since its inception, and I remain one. Uh, The notion that MMT puts forward that we can use fiscal policy as an effective lever to move inflation rates up and down uh, in short periods of time, I think the current period really shows uh, how detached from reality that is. It, while in theory, uh, there may be a case for that, and there is certainly a case, as I argued in our discussion before, that there are some specific circumstances where demand is deficient in an economy and we need the public sector to come in and boost demand in order to keep the wheels of an economy moving, uh, we are well past that point now. It is clear that there is no case for stimulus spending at this point. In macroeconomic terms, we talk about the output gap being closed, and that's a gap between what the economy could produce if its full potential were being realized in terms of its stock of labor, capital, and its technology and where we're producing in a given time, we have fully closed that gap and we are moving slightly beyond it. And in those circumstances, we generally think that all extra spending is going to do is increase price pressures. Um, and so we, we are clearly in a situation where the effectiveness that MMT ascribes to fiscal policy and being able to turn on a dime and make micro-tuning adjustments to inflation doesn't seem to be the case. And it's also the case that you know the spending that we put forward to bridge houses, households, and businesses through the pandemic 
was incredibly effective. The scarring to the economy has been much smaller than most economists anticipated it would be, but now it's time to pull it back substantially. And before we get to fiscal policy and the recent budget, there's obviously a major role for monetary policy. So let's think about, we can think about monetary policy, it's allowed in politics. Some of us should think about it, I think, more thoughtfully than Pierre Poilev and opting out of inflation. We can get to that. But when it comes to monetary policy, and the Bank of Canada's response to inflation, moving away from quantitative easing, but also hiking up interest rates much more quickly than they initially indicated not so long ago, and, and maybe didn't have the foresight on inflation that, that they could have had or, or maybe should have had, I'm not sure. But do you think the Bank of Canada is responding adequately to the, the challenge in front of them? Well, I think the Bank of Canada has one of the biggest and smartest groups of macroeconomists trying to gauge what's happening in the Canadian economy, and they are headed by a peerless leader in Tiff Macklem. So we have the right people, the right resources, and the right analysis being brought to bear on this. Now, it's true that they didn't anticipate that inflation would go as high as it had or be what is likely as persistent as it's set to be. But in fairness, almost no one did. Uh, There are going to be uh, gainsayers who say, oh, we saw this coming because they had inflation forecasts a year ago or six months ago that were slightly higher than consensus. Sure. But no one was putting inflation at the levels it's at right now. And if they were, they were anticipating that it would touch these kind of levels incredibly briefly and retreat. We know that we're seeing a bleed through uh, to the general economy from high energy prices and high food prices and tight labor market impact on wages that is causing inflation to be higher and more durable than most anyone anticipated. And the Bank of Canada is responding. We have seen them turn very quickly on a policy dime from an anticipation of a rather slow set of progressions toward Uh, reducing the size of their balance sheet and increasing interest rates to a much more rapid advance on both fronts. And on the fiscal policy front, and these are not disconnected conversations, an expansionary fiscal policy requires the Bank of Canada to respond even more quickly. And so presumably the answer is not only the Bank of Canada continuing the measures that they're continuing on, but some level of prudence in fiscal policy, including from the federal government. I spoke to Sahir Khan from Institute for Fiscal Studies and Democracy, and he echoed Kevin Page's op-ed. This was a measured budget. This was a modest budget. This was a responsible budget. This was a sustainable budget. And there was new spending, significant new spending in some regards, against a, a windfall from fall fiscal update of $85 billion or so. So it's about a third of spending and the rest is going down to pay down the deficit and to reduce the deficit. So when you take a look at the role of fiscal policy in light of the inflationary environment in which we live, did the budget get it right? Yeah, I think Kevin Page's assessment of modest and responsible is broadly appropriate, but I think there are a few caveats to keep in mind here. First, to your point about the interplay between monetary and fiscal policy, it is absolutely the case that uh, any kind of budget deficit at this stage, when that output gap is fully closed, when we have very tight labor markets, when we are seeing economic growth at around 4% this year and the high 3% range next year, which is well above 
the Bank of Canada and finances and most private sector economists' estimates of our underlying potential growth rate. That is, the growth rate Canada would see if we didn't have any exceptional fiscal and monetary policy stimulus in place, that growth rate would be around 1.75 to 2%. So we are in a situation where all the slack in the economy is used up. We're growing at a rate that is beyond uh, what our underlying potential would imply is sustainable. And in those circumstances, a fiscal deficit, unless it causes a massive increase in productivity immediately, is going to be broadly inflationary, increase price pressures, and put the onus on the Bank of Canada to increase interest rates more than it might otherwise do. If we're in a circumstance where we had a lot of slack in the economy and we were seeing deficits on the size that we're looking at this year or even larger ones, it might not imply anything for the Bank of Canada in terms of interest rate increases, but we're not in that world. It's worth noting that spending has increased in every fiscal update from the federal government over the last three years. Now, that is to be expected through 2020 and 2021. In this last fiscal update, I think because you don't have a case for any stimulus, but you do have a case for potentially investing in longer-term efforts to increase productivity, you would have expected spending potentially to come down more than it has. And the fact that deficits are coming down is largely a byproduct of the very high growth rates that we're still seeing this year and next year and the big bump in revenue that those are setting off. Questions about sustainability are kind of moot in my mind. It would have been actually a huge achievement, not a good one, but a huge achievement if we had seen the deficit to GDP ratio not coming down, if we had seen debt to GDP ratios not coming down. It would be almost impossible not to see uh, that, particularly with interest rates as low as they are. We've got debt service as a share of GDP at the lowest level it's been at in decades. So the question then really becomes, if we're going to keep spending at these levels, what is it buying us in terms of longer term increases in productivity and growth potential? If it's not boosting productivity and growth over time, then we have to look really seriously at whether that full envelope of spending is still too high. On the question of different kinds of spending and and you've touched on this in terms of spending that increases productivity, that has a return that adds to growth. And I went through this with Sahir to some extent, but not all spending is equal. And spending focused certainly on consumption would have been especially problematic in an inflationary environment. Now, you've indicated any deficit spending presents challenges for the Bank of Canada's role potentially. And so even the modest spending will put not undue pressure, but added pressure to the the bank's role in in this context. But when we look at the kinds of spending that encourage productivity, thinking of the spending not as if all spending is an investment, but but looking specifically to what would be medium and long-term investments, and you look at this budget in particular and, and where the investments are allocated in that 60 billion, 30 of which is is not paid for. Do you see the right approach in the kinds of spending to encourage that kind of productivity and growth? Yeah, I do see uh, some spending that can truly buy higher output and greater productivity over time. And I think, uh, you know, this is what U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is referring to when she talks 
about modern supply side growth. It's spending that is not focused on consumption. Uh, it may be current spending that is not directly focused on investment in capital or equipment or technology, uh, but is the kind of spending that will produce uh, a more than proportionate gain in total output over time. The uh, childcare strategy, early learning and childcare strategy is a great case in point. The IMF estimated a few years back in a staff paper that if the current gap in uh, labor market participation between highly educated men and women in Canada were closed, and that gap is about seven percentage points, real GDP would be boosted by 4%. And that's every year. That's worth about $70 billion in current terms. And that childcare strategy is costed at around $28 billion. So that's a great case where current spending actually can be conflated with an investment that produces a greater uh, bump in output than the cost of that current spending. But we've got to be careful. You know, in conflating current spending as, in, as investment is something they think has been modeled a bit across successive budgets by this government. And it's left our terminology and our way of understanding different spending programs a little confused. And I think, you know, this is a good opportunity now as we come out of the pandemic to reset and be very clear about this cost benefit analysis. Another good example is the housing accelerator fund, $4 billion, you know, to try to incentivize provinces and municipalities to do things in terms of their local planning and bylaws that will allow for greater density and greater housing supply. That is almost certainly going to produce much bigger gains than the $4 billion that are outlaid. The budget also talks about uh, leadership on interprovincial trade barriers. Again, the International Monetary Fund estimated that reducing interprovincial trade barriers would add 4% to Canadian GDP. Again, that's around $70 billion a year. You could imagine creating a fund at the federal level that would be used to incentivize provinces to get provincial trade barriers down. And, you know, something like 10, 20, 30 billion, if it produces 70 billion in GDP gains, is money well spent. And you could argue that's current spending that is tantamount to an investment. Well, let's use the housing accelerator as an example, because I think of all the housing promises we made, that's the one that I would hang my hat on as, as making a difference and not playing around the edges. Everything else feels a little bit like playing around the edges of a, of a really serious problem. Four billion spread across the country depends how aggressive we really want to be with municipalities to begin with. I, I would hope we would be fairly aggressive at, at dangling carrots, but four billion spread across the country doesn't leave us a ton of ammunition to really make the difference on supply, given the constraints we see across this country and the exclusionary zoning we see in so many municipalities. You'd want I think more ammunition at the federal government's disposal, but it would require additional spending. And so there you've got an example where you've got significant return to a particular policy lever, but as against the inflation concern and, and the concern around deficit spending in that inflationary environment, you're, you're left trying to square two challenges together that, that are competing priorities in some ways. Uh, well, yeah, but the the whole notion 
of spending in a way that reduces costs, increases productivity and output overall is that that reduces inflationary pressures. You know, when you've got uh, spending that produces a bigger than proportionate uh, output in terms of increased economic activity and uh, associated investments, then, you know, in principle, that's actually price pressure reducing rather than increasing. You are potentially squaring uh, competing priorities. I mean, another set of priorities that are difficult to square, again, around housing is that the share of residential real estate in Canadian GDP has been way too high, disproportionately high for a long time. And at the same time, we're not getting nearly enough business investment happening in Canada. And the only way to square those two things is to get more foreign capital into the country. And one of the odd things I've got to admit I found in this budget is a certain hostility to foreign capital. You know, there's discussion uh, about bringing in, you know, a ban on foreign ownership for two years in housing. There's discussion about uh, some kind of review of large corporate players uh, in the residential real estate sector. I mean, the reference to players, I think, is kind of pejorative. Uh, It doesn't distinguish whether they're domestic or foreign. But if anything, we need much more capital in housing to get the supply response we need. And yet we're discussing... In new builds. But so I, you and I have discussed this at at different points, but... I continue to be of the view that we have far too much investment, foreign, domestic. I I take no issue one way or the other. I think we just have generally too much investment that isn't adding supply to the total stock. You You could say, well, it's adding rental stock and it's taking it out of home ownership stock. But in general, when we look at the broad picture of supply, if you've got foreign investment or domestic investment that is building new supply, have at it. Let's in, let's encourage that investment. But if you are adding demand to one side of the ledger in the resale market and you don't have new supply coming online to meet that demand, that strikes me as a real challenge in terms of encouraging that kind of investment in the resale space. Yeah, that could be. But I guess I'd make two points here. One, attacking demand here is uh, essentially letting all three levels of government off the hook for what have been persistent policy failures in getting more supply built. And secondly, attacking demand isn't going to crowd in more capital to the new build part here. It's going to scare it off, whether it's domestic or foreign. I would hope that one could craft policies. I think New Zealand's not so far away as an example. If you are an investor and you're going to buy an existing unit, your stress test is going to be higher, your down payment is going to be higher, and we treat investors differently. When you see in Ontario, 20% of folks in the resale marketplace are investors, that seems to me, I could have it wrong, but we've allowed an excessive financialization of what is a necessary good. And we aren't using that financialization for the ends that we should use it for, which is to build supply in the first place. So, you know, we 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 may disagree in some ways, but I think overall, I, I agree with the, the premise that we need to use financial tools to build supply. And I would probably be a little bit more aggressive or a lot more aggressive on tamping down demand in the resale space. But I, with your comments about an openness to continue deficit spending on certain measures that, that would actually address inflationary concerns because they have a strong return. I, I wrote... I don't always write intelligent things, 
but I, I, I like to think my budget submission was not that makes two of us. It was, it was not the worst. But I, I wrote to Minister Freeland in relation to this budget because we were having this conversation about prudence. And, and I did say, in terms of the broad approach, I support greater prudence with one caveat. While we need to be more cautious about deficit spending for many programs, I continue to support time-limited spending that will generate a strong return. For example, an expansion of our climate action should not be curtailed due to current inflationary concerns. In contrast, I thought our major deficit spending for programs like OAS and the basic personal amount were fiscally irresponsible at the time, and it would be doubly so now. And I, I do think a more thoughtful conversation pulls different kind of spending apart. Your challenge back, I think, is if we're categorizing everything as an investment, see here, definitely put this challenge back. If we're categorizing everything as an investment. It starts to bleed the, the lines and it becomes a lot harder to, to take that two-track approach. You know, I think so. And But I understand why it's happening. You know, if we look at both the theory and practice uh, around economic growth over the last 40 to 50 years or so, you know, Paul Romer won a Nobel Prize for, you know, his focus on the role of human capital and ideas in growth and, you know, the increasing identification of the biggest boost to productivity coming from intangibles, not from, you know, changing the machines or changing the way we use land, uh, but actually changing the ideas that overlay uh, how those resources and people get employed. And so, you know, with that, now, roughly 30-year history in the academics of economic growth, it's perfectly reasonable that you would see governments talking to an ever greater extent about investments in or spending on developing human capital as being an investment. Uh, but it, it has to be done in a very careful way. Otherwise, every bit of spending becomes an investment everything is justifiable and you know the medium to longer term cost benefit in terms of productivity growth gets uh, really muddled and lost and that spending then can easily become uh, simply inflationary in an environment like the one we have now it's it's even hard Brett it's even hard in within categories because if you your childcare example I have a constituent who helped me go down this rabbit hole of research and James Heckman and the, mm-hmm. the academic literature. And it's not surprising when you when you think about it, but the Heckman conclusion is there's no strong economic case for universal childcare. Now, there are good social reasons to have us all in the same public schools. I'm a product of public school system, different backgrounds, diverse backgrounds, economic backgrounds. There's good reasons, social cohesion, and and making sure as a society, what kind of society do we want to live in? I, I think there are good arguments for universal programs in, in education and in childcare, early learning for those reasons. But high income families are going to participate in the labor force and pay $20,000 a year for childcare because it's in their interest to do so and they can afford it. And childcare has a huge economic return. Don't get me wrong, a huge economic return, but not for those high income families participating in the labor force because they're already participating in the labor force. Far be it from me to uh, claim greater insight than James Hackman. Uh, he is an illustrious economist who's done incredible work, but Canada has a very clear natural experiment in uh, more affordable childcare. When we look at labor market participation for men and women in Quebec versus in Ontario, the $10 a day model, uh, you know, initially even cheaper than that in Quebec, initially $7, then 12 converged this century uh, labor market participation rates almost completely between men, men and women in Quebec. Over that same period, they haven't come close together at all 
in Ontario. And so, you know, while, you know, concurrence is not necessarily causality, I think we can make a pretty strong inference that that childcare policy had a major impact on women's labor market participation. It unlocked for the Canadian or the Quebec economy uh, a massive amount of undertapped potential. And it is nearly impossible for me to have a reasonable conversation about the benefits of greater skilled immigration into Canada without us also talking about increasing women's labor market participation in Canada. These are skilled workers who are already here, are already part of the Canadian fabric. Uh, if we truly believe uh, skilled immigration is a great thing, we can't uh, maintain that belief without also doing everything we can to unlap, uh, unlock uh, the potential of Canadian women in the workforce. And the clearest step to doing that based on the Quebec experiment is uh, affordable childcare. Yeah, I, don't, I, I wouldn't disagree with anything you said. Just at the at the upper echelons, I don't think you get the economic return because people are able to participate in the labor force already. But I think when you when you look at the totality of labor force participation in Quebec, I mean, I think the answer is, that you've just laid out is, is obviously the correct one. And there's a strong economic return overall, unquestionably. Another issue, you were at a press conference alongside the One Campaign and Senator Harder mm -hmm. And I had introduced a motion on this front too. And this is again, an issue that you can frame from a, a justice lens and a fairness lens, but I would argue there are massive economic security reasons to invest in global vaccine equity. And in a budget that spent 60 billion new dollars over five years, we didn't even meet the 1.1 billion that the one campaign was calling for. I don't know if you, I don't know if that stuck out to you in any way. It was, I noticed it and I was disappointed in it. There, I'm not to, not to say we didn't spend anything. It was 730 some million dollars in new spending to get to our fair share. I, I frankly don't know that we get to our fair share via that amount. And regardless, I, I would think that a country like Canada should do more than our fair share in a, in, in a context like this. But there is again, an issue you could cast it in one way as uh, type of spending that is about fairness. And you could also cast it in with a really strong economic lens to say, this has a strong return because how devastating to our balance sheets would a really nasty variant would be. You know, I think there's a strong uh, economic justice argument for vaccinating the world. But, you know, regardless of whether you buy that, I think there is a massively a easy cost benefit analysis to look at. You know, the industrialized world has spent over 11 trillion US dollars on pandemic related relief to sustain households and businesses uh, through shutdowns. Uh, for something like $50 billion, we could vaccinate the entire world. At that level, given that we spent you know, over $60 billion in Canada, we've argued in the past that, you know, Canada alone could offer to put up uh, the money to vaccinate the world. Think of how that would say Canada is back in a really big fashion. You know, after years of underfinancing foreign aid against various commitments, uh, we say, look, we're going to take the lead here and we will underwrite vaccinating the world. We're inviting pledges to join us, but you know, if they don't come in, uh, we'll, we'll pick up the slack. We've shown we can clearly spend that much in a sustainable fashion. Um, and if you want to think about, you know, the, the kind of potential 
spin-offs or byproducts being positive for Canada. I can't think of a bigger move we could make in foreign policy and spending terms that is a no-brainer in terms of cost-benefit. We don't have to do it all ourselves, but we could. It's small compared to what we just spent. You mentioned modern supply-side economics in reference to Janet Yellen. You're referencing her, but Minister Freeland referenced her as well in the budget Mm -hmm. speech and echoed in the same way Yellen is defending the Build Back Better plan via modern supply-side economics. It was Minister Freeland's defense of this budget in, in many respects to say, yes, we have to be cautious. Yes, we have to be prudent, but these are investments in, in adding productivity, in adding to, to labor supply. We are obviously investing in childcare. We've already made these investments as of the last budget, whereas Yellen is articulating a strong defense of, of coming childcare investments in, in, on the American side. They've also expanded the earned income tax credit our, our Canada workers benefit again, something we did in the last budget, not this one. Mm-hmm. And when I looked at Yellen's examples of mo- what amounts to modern supply side economics, just as everything can be cast as an investment, I was a little bit skeptical where she starts to talk about the green economy as in, including in modern su- supply side economics. She talks about how the global minimum tax on corporate foreign earnings is encapsulated in this bucket somehow as well. And fairness, the the, the fair distribution of wealth and, and, and income, which I, I absolutely believe in and, and I think is critical. How is that connected to modern supply side economics? Well, walk me through how one should be thinking about modern supply side economics as a, as a theory of the case. If you want to talk about modern supply side economics, you need to talk about is the current spending or uh, the investment in uh, some permanent increase in capital stock or skills or technology uh, going to produce greater economic returns than the cost up front. So childcare is a great example, $28 billion cost, annually $70 billion output per year. You know, you could look at, you know, various types of infrastructure spending, but, you know, there the calculus is a lot tougher. You know, Larry Summers made his name on a series of papers, amongst others, in the 1990s for showing that infrastructure spending in macro terms had very little impact on output and productivity. So you need some very careful analysis there. But the heart of modern supply side theory And the reason we're calling it modern as opposed to just supply-side theory, supply-side theory used to be uh, supply creates its own demand. Lower taxes, less regulation, let the market have at it. Right. And what we're saying here is, no, actually creating the right kind of greater and more effective supply creates greater output uh, over time because of its impact on productivity and uh, it's decreasing, uh, it's decreased on price pressures. And how do fairness considerations play into this in terms of fair taxation or fair compensation? These are important conversations to be had, and, and I will land on the side of, of greater fairness probably in most of these conversations. But how do they add to the productive economy? Uh, I think both of us, you know, uh, start from a perspective of, Uh, wanting to see more equitable uh, distribution of income and wealth. And uh, both of us come from, 
you know, middle-class families that, you know, have done well uh, through the 20th and early 21st centuries, uh, but are not, you know, endowed with massive means. And um, I think, uh, you know, rather than citing fairness arguments, I would just come back to efficiency arguments. We know in kind of uh, just standard marginal terms, a dollar spent you know, on someone in constrained circumstances has a disproportionate impact compared with a dollar spent for someone, you know, who's already pretty well off, whether it's in terms of better uh, nutritional inputs and better health outcomes, educational outcomes, or just broad social indicators. Um, And so I would make, you know, those equity considerations, I would argue for them on efficiency gains rather than equity itself as a good. Of course, equity, you know, as a good is a perfectly noble uh, objective to reach for, but, you know, it's it's uh, not a necessary thing to reach in arguing for this. I think a sufficient condition is efficiency and efficiency grounds are more than satisfied by uh, diverting resources to people who don't have many. If I think of the social determinants of health then, and, I'm, and I care about any poverty and I care about stronger education and I care about as you say, food security and and, and more, mm-hmm. but it's via a lens of ensuring, yes, fairness, but knowing that this individual will be more productive over the course of their lifetime as well. And, and so mm-hmm. it's in that context that I would think of it as modern supply side economics. Yeah, you could, but it's not just over their entire lifetime. It's that, you know, a dollar spent on them now is going to produce both immediately and over the longer term uh, a greater marginal return than a dollar spent on someone who's already got a lot of resources. The the notion being, you know, you you have let's say a constrained calorie diet. Let's say you're only getting a thousand calories a day. You add a hundred calories to your diet. That's a ten percent improvement uh, versus someone who's already consuming five thousand calories a day. That's a much smaller percentage improvement. I, I, pr- I press the issue in some ways because when I, when I see the current role that Janet Yellen occupies, it's a political role, and she's there to sell the Build Back Better plan. And I, I do worry sometimes that when we introduce these ideas, we then try to fit everything we want to do within a single framework. And whether it can bear all of that, I don't know. And so th- that's, I don't know whether I've effectively pressed it or not, but th- that's a I want to drive as much as I could at what really are we talking about when we're talking about modern supply side economics and can all of these things fit? Well, and and, and I don't think they can. Uh, you know, what what I think the most essential kernel of Janet Yellen's notion of modern supply side economics is that, you know, a dollar spent is producing more than a dollar in gains right. in terms of total economic output. And that it's doing so in a durable way. It's not just one year that it does so, but it improves productivity and efficiency in an ongoing way over time so that disproportionate gain is sustained over time. That is what makes supply-side economics, as she's discussing it, modern and distinct uh, from the kind of supply-side economics we saw in the 80s under Reagan and uh, you know others where it was just about deregulation, reducing taxes on people who are already doing well and on corporations that are already doing well and assuming that that would unleash productive potential and grow the economy. 
from that side. It, it, it is a distinct uh, notion. And I think, you know, we should acknowledge before Janet Yellen was Treasury Secretary and before she was chair of the U.S. Fed, the Central Bank of the United States, she was also for decades one of the most distinguished uh, macroeconomic uh, researchers in the United States. So there, there is a political imperative to what she's doing right now in her current role. Uh, but I trust Janet Yellen to ground even uh, political discourse in a very solid uh, empirical and theoretical background. Uh, that means as much to her as any political expediencies. She is not going to undermine decades of uh, incredible academic reputation for a quick political hit. Unlike some in, in our universe and and in the monetary policy space in Canada, I was going to put the question to you, is the socialist coalition budget going to turbocharge inflation as Pierre Wallem thinks it will? But I, but I won't ask you that because I know I can just opt out of inflation by buying a shawarma. I, I would buy a falafel, I'm vegan, but by buying a falafel with, with cryptocurrency, I can, just, I can just opt out of inflation. Uh, you know, it's uh, way easier to buy a shawarma or a falafel with your debit card or to interact payment using uh, your phone uh, to ever selling you the snack. Going through any sort of cryptocurrency medium is expensive, difficult, and uh, a step uh, beyond what is beneficial to almost any of us. On the much bigger macroeconomic level uh, that Mr. Polyev is proposing that Canada does not and Canadians do not have control of their currency, the argument is just fallacious and absurd. We have the ability to issue debt uh, at a AAA credit rating in our domestic currency. International confidence in our currency is amongst the highest of any currency in the world. And the creation of money in Canada, the interest rates that are charged for borrowing it are uh, implemented by an institution that while at arm's length, from political decision makers is subject to a range of accountability measures. In contrast, Bitcoin is a mysterious system created by an unknown person who at any given time could absolutely flood uh, that cryptocurrency system with new issuance, with no accountability, with no review, with no answerability to uh, elected representatives. The suggestion that that would offer Canadians more control than our current monetary arrangement is insane. I had Michelle Rempel on the podcast recently talked about crypto and, and she's got a piece of legislation to encourage the growth of crypto assets in Canada. And I know the UK is going through a similar conversation. And that is all on one plane of debate. Mm -hmm. And you've articulated some reasons to be a bit skeptical of a flooding of the market with new cryptocurrencies, but I understand why certain crypto assets and Michelle and I walk through, there's certainly value to blockchain in, in a range of different contexts. Paul Lev, when he makes the case about opting out of inflation, that's when I sort of sit back and go, I've lost, <laughs> what am I missing? This, this sounds like completely like alien to me. I've walked off of a, of a spaceship and I don't understand the language that he's speaking. How do you opt out of inflation? <laughs> Well, yeah, the, the, there are two <laughs> distinct things to take on there. Uh, one is uh, some of the technology around cryptocurrencies, blockchain, and the distributed ledger systems. Uh, there is some real innovation there. This 
ability to create uh, a potentially secure uh, system by which uh, exchange of resources can be made absent any kind of overall controlling authority is, you know, something that is a bit of a breakthrough. And I think you will see aspects of that technology adopted by most major central banks in the next uh, 10 to 20 years in what we refer to as central bank digital currencies. So, so we could have a Canadian dollar that is a digital currency that is transacted through some kind of blockchain. And what that means then is that you have a digital Canadian dollar that is effectively like holding paper currency in your hand. You can transact between people with no record through the banking system, no uh, way in which you know the CRA can track it. And by the way, you then end up providing, whether it's using crypto or Canadian or US dollars in this uh, digital currency space, you then end up providing an incredible uh, means by which money launderers, you know, violent gangs, countries like Russia could subvert and go around sanctions and other limits on illegal activities. So, you know, essentially you, 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 I wouldn't say you weaponize, but you, you make the ability of people to move cash around much grander and bigger in scale. You no longer have people carrying suitcases like we used to see in the movies of these stacks of hundreds or twenties. You can do that all electronically in what is virtually exactly the same kind of move. So yeah, you know, if you're evading taxes or you're trying to avoid sanctions, uh, that's an incredibly powerful technology to have. For most of the rest of us, I really say for 99.999% of us, something like Interac, which is increasingly becoming costless for most banking customers, and the SWIFT system, which uh, facilitates bigger transfers between financial institutions, they work great. And they have the additional benefit that when something goes wrong, you can fix it. You can't uh, with uh, blockchain or digital currency uh, because it is truly like handing someone a uh, piece of paper money or plastic money as it now is in Canada. Just wanted to buy, I just want to buy my falafel with crypto, Brett. Just leave me alone. <laughs> you know, if I, I, I can't stop you if you really want to make your life more difficult, <laughs> more expensive and less convenient. Um, you know, if, if, if you've got that time on your hands with uh, two kids, a busy, you know, job between Ottawa and Toronto and a community that you're serving very ably, like, Go at it. But uh, <laughs> as for me, my debit card's working really well. <laughs> I, I did see the clip of Pillows on uh, Evan Solomon, and, yeah. and, and it made me laugh. It's, uh, I don't know, the Conservatives went at the Prime Minister so hard when he said he, he doesn't turn his mind to monetary policy. I think he said, I'm sorry if I don't think of monetary policy, or I forget what the exact line was. But isn't it worse to have the completely incorrect approach to monetary policy than to not think of it at all? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You, you know, I'd say the, the worst thing is to know better and yet propose something that you know is likely to be inimical to the interests of the average Canadians whose vote you're trying to court. Because the notion, uh, as Mr. Polyev proposed, that you could opt out of inflation by using crypto is patently absurd because when you look at the volatility of crypto values, 
over the last few years, they would make the headline inflation we're seeing now in Canada at 5.7, 5.8% look tiny when you know you see you know hundreds of percent swings in the value of cryptocurrency over just a matter of a few months. The translation into the prices of real goods in crypto terms would be astonishing. It would make uh, the hyper inflationary episodes of places like Bolivia and Argentina. When inflation rates were so high, people used to pay for dinner at the beginning of the meal because they were concerned that an hour and a half later, the cost of uh, the meal would have gone up so much that they might not have enough money in their pocket to pay for it back in the 80s. That would look like a child's version of inflation if we were actually using crypto in the current circumstances. So opting out of inflation, uh, you'd be opting in to massive inflation and massive disinflation and deflation too. With that, I, I think we can leave it there. I, I, honestly, I just encourage you to watch more midnight YouTube videos about uh, crypto and maybe you'll change your mind. <laughs> and no, in, in all fairness, it's easy to dunk on all of that. I do worry, and this tracks back to the housing conversation, it's so easy to point the finger at existing governments, not only the federal liberal government, but the provincial conservative government here in Ontario or the provincial NDP government in BC and to say, you haven't done enough on housing or municipal governments in Toronto and in Vancouver and, and, and across Ontario to say, you haven't done enough to build supply. You, you've said this is an issue, you haven't done enough. It's very easy to point to the problem. And from an opposition perspective, you don't need to identify solutions in the same way. I think Gen Squeeze is an amazing organization. I've had Paul Kershaw on the podcast previously, and he articulates an exactly right view of the 40-year history that we are earning less as, as younger Canadians. We are paying more for education. It took five years to save up a down payment. Now it's taking over 20 years to save up a down payment. And I've spoken to constituents who saved up the down payment and then price escalation meant they had to keep saving. And it's this constant catch up to the price escalation we've seen in, in the housing market. And on all fronts, young Canadians are getting squeezed. That's the premise of Gen Squeeze. And, and, and they're right. And they've got the numbers to show for it. And Paul Lev, it's, it's so easy to dunk on him in so many different ways. But we do have to be cognizant of him tapping into that. Which is, a, which is a real concern to tap into. There are many people, I'm 37, I mean, there are many people my age and younger who feel exactly this way, this maddening frustration that how is it that we are so much worse off than our parents in terms of our, our economic opportunities and how much we are paying for the very same things. And especially for these major and necessary goods. Anyway, so I, in closing, it's also good to say eyes wide open let's recognize that's a silly thing. This opt-out of inflation, dunk on them, completely wrongheaded, silly. In the same way they make fun of Justin Trudeau, we should make fun of Pierre Poilev. But on the question of housing, I do think we have to then, we have to occupy the same space. And we have to say, we are going to lean into this issue with everything we possibly can and and do the, do the job so we wake up by 2025 and we have something to show for ourselves in a way that he can't just wag his finger and say, home prices have escalated and you've done nothing. We should be able to say at our level, we've done absolutely everything we can. This isn't only a federal issue and we have to work together. And if you want to pick your fight, yeah, maybe pick your fight with the city of Vancouver as, as he recently did. Um, anyway, okay. So that's that's my rant. But, uh, but I, I want to respond to that rant. Yeah, yeah. Respond with your rant. Yeah. First off, I'm not dunking on anyone. And I'm not. No, but I, I am. I am. I am. You know, what 
does disturb me greatly is that someone who has been in public policy for his entire adult life as an elected member of parliament and has been engaged on economic files for a substantial portion of that time is willing to propose something because it has some populist resonance around it that he knows would be bad for the very people who are cheering him when he uh, puts it forward. Uh, I think leadership demands a lot more than that. And uh, I want to see better than that, regardless of the political stripe from people who are proposing ideas. I agree. It's not enough just to critique. It is a step forward uh, to actually propose a solution. But let's eliminate from uh, the choice set things we know that wouldn't be good exactly uh, for Canadians. And this is a case where that's incredibly clear. I think, though, the big concern, I think, in, in a roundabout way, you know, you're, you're, you're pointing to this, which is that the reason why things like adoption of cryptocurrencies is being cheered is because it speaks to uh, a lack of faith by a substantial share of Canadians in our major institutions, in uh, their representatives, and the public policy organizations and people who purport, and I think genuinely are, trying to do the right things for Canada to make this a better place where prosperity is greater and more equitably shared. There is a big chunk of people who don't believe that. And it is no good for folks like ourselves to sit here and you know have a smart podcast that doesn't convince those people that opposition to crypto isn't just about reasserting, maintaining technocrats' uh, position in Ottawa, but it truly is about maintaining uh, the well-being and the potential for all Canadians to benefit from it of our current society. And so that lack of faith in institutions, which is what I think is being tapped into and reflected when people say, yeah, let's go crypto, uh, is, is the big concern over and above any specific policy measures or proposals. And that's something we've got to address day in, day out. We saw uh, how that's driven politics south of the border. We see how it's driving some politics here. Those of us who you know think hard about these things are kind of wasting our time if we're not thinking about how to also make sure uh, not only that we do the right analysis, but that we communicate in a way that the people who are supposed to benefit from it actually believe it. Brett, thank you for joining me on uh, what was a wider ranging conversation than I'd intended to be in some ways. Uh, but but we, we touched on the budget largely and, 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 and principally. So uh, thanks for joining me for the second time. And I, you know, I know we'll stay in touch. So, so thanks. It's a pleasure to be on with you and keep up the good work for Beat This and East York. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. Lots to think about in the course of the federal budget. And I found it interesting, at least, that both Sahir and Brett touched on this issue of trust in government and institutions in different ways. Our next episode will be one from the vault, as it were, a conversation with former BC Greens leader Andrew Weaver that I'd intended to post late last year in the wake of COP26, and somehow it's already April 2022, so it's still relevant, I think, in the wake of our recent emissions reduction plan, and I I think a useful conversation around climate action and reasons to be optimistic still. As always, please leave a positive review if, if you like what we're doing, and otherwise, until next time.